Hello and welcome to Unapologetically Successful Podcast. Today we have with us Professor Matt Cooperholtz, the AI expert in Australia and one of the leading data scientists around the world. The conversation and the interview we had has put much smile and so much intrigue into my thinking and I hope you find it as exciting and insightful as I have and I just wanted to say the interview shows you the personality and the wonderful sense of humor Matt has and I think it's you will enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, enjoy and here it is. Hi there. Hello. Good, how are you? Sorry. This is very exciting. Great. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm in Cremorne, which is a, a sort of tech hub of, of Melbourne. It's great. Tech hub of Melbourne. I didn't know that Melbourne actually had a tech hub. But... It does. It's this little suburb called Cremorne. It's near the sporting precinct and it's called Silicon Alley because this is where your car sales and your because Uber you and your seek it. And because <laughs> I'm here as well, yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, this is so exciting. Let's see how it goes. Tell me afterwards if it's still the That's highlight. True. It'll be fabulous. So first of all, I am fascinated by data. I run a podcast called Unapologetically Successful, and it's about empowering and encouraging people on understanding the pathways for people becoming successful. Success, in my mind, is if you achieve or if you do something that you wanted to do. So that's first of all. And unapologetic comes from taking a little bit out of the Australian tall poppy <laughs> syndrome. Yep. Because a lot of people, Australia has a bit of a culture on, yeah, we, we not everyone is always celebrating success. Let's just put it that way. Agree. Now, I would like to ask a few questions about your journey to becoming the number one AI expert in Australia and a few more questions in regards to use of AI and where you see opportunities, limitations, and how does artificial intelligence influence, or it might not influence, I actually don't have the answer, but what, where do you see artificial intelligence in the leadership aspect of, of the future organizations? And I know that you work very closely with... Kaggle. Kaggle, yeah. Yeah, have but in the past, yeah. You don't work with them anymore? Kaggle, as in the data science um, community where it's gamified and they go to a large outsourced bunch of providers to compete for the best solution. Talking about Kaggle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember when they were tiny. I remember before they started because I knew the gentleman, Anthony Goldblum, through my actuarial role. So I was involved from the start and then I was one of their referees for their initial sale to Google and one of the sort of first users putting it inside some of my clients as an alternative way to get access to that talent who had the right solution for the problem just sitting there all along. That was one of the, the beautiful things about Kaggle was they very quickly proved that the crowd does better than an internal view of a problem. So most famously, they took Hubble telescope data where they were trying to find dark matter. And NASA had been working away on this for decades. Yeah. yeah, great story. Stories like that, right? That someone out there has the analytical technique or the know-how for your problem and you just have to find a way to reach it. And gamification, I think, taps into a really basic human desire to perform and compete. And it, it just worked really well in that space. So mixing gamification together with crowdsourcing, together with data science, uh, turned out to be a brilliant move. And I'm still 
using Kaggle competitions and the blogs that are associated with it for, for research in my work at the moment around racehorses, especially. All right. So let's go into it then, because it's this is going to be probably oh, so exciting. I would love you to introduce yourself and take the listeners a little bit on the journey, how it all started. You, yep. have, you have been an actuary. You're the top data scientist in Australia. I think that's the top. <laughs> you are the top. The top, yeah. <laughs> You won the all of them first one. No, the, the first one. So back in 2018, they ran it for the first time, and Australia doesn't have such a deep market, so it's been an interesting competition. I was very keen to win it in the first year, and then stepped away from it, put a stake allowed in the some, sand as the inaugural winner. Allowed some other people to have a chance. Yeah, all of that. Okay, I'm happy to tell that story. If yeah, that's can the you, way to get okay, started. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Sure let's thing. My name is Matt Kuverholtz. Nice to meet you. I am a data scientist who has been focused on artificial intelligence for over 30 years. My path to get here was being born in the 70s and being passionate about computers, which weren't in everyone's hands on every desktop. It was a bit of a difficult journey. I had to go looking for the things, but I, I did go looking for them and I washed cars up and down the street to buy my first computer in 1982 and have been really in love with computers and technology ever since. I had hoped to have a career that had something to do with computers, but back in those days when you were good at maths the, and you wanted to do business, the career path led me to actuarial science. And I was put through university by an actuarial firm. I also studied computer science at university along with my actuarial science and started life as a consulting actuary. I realized that any opportunity I got, I was trying to bring more and more computing into that work. The web was starting to take off, if you talk about web 1.0 in the sort of mid to late 90s. And I felt there was a great opportunity to formally bring computer science together with actuarial problem solving, together with high powered consulting, which is one way of looking at what we now call data science. Back then, we didn't know it as such, but I jumped out of the actuarial profession and got involved in an AI startup in the late 90s. And it was still a novel idea that when we went to companies and I was trying to sell them software, they actually were less interested in the software, they were more interested in a solution to their problem, that we would say to them, that problem you're facing, we think there's actually data in your organization that could help solve it. And that idea of data being an asset that could be leveraged against business problems was, believe it or not, once completely novel, especially to senior business leaders. But we would show them that as you build your customers, you created a data asset which could be repurposed to stopping those same customers from churning. Or as you paid your employees or rostered them, you could also flip that data and make a safer workplace or a workplace with more engaged employees. Or as you tracked and onboarded your suppliers in your supply chain, you could actually repurpose that data for supply chain resilience or traceability or other supply chain solutions. So it was explaining to my clients back then at the infancy of data science, that data was an asset and the value of that asset depended on the business problems that you applied it to. I was running my own consulting business out of after selling the AI business, but I got very quickly involved with Deloitte mm. and they were keen to build a data science practice to help them compete in Australia where they were not doing so well back then. We're going back about 20 years. And so I started a, a global data science practice with Deloitte. We called it advanced analytics 
and had a fantastic time in the sort of golden years of, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, Susanna. There was nowhere that you turned that you couldn't find a client where there was a fantastic opportunity to help them use their data better because no one was doing it. Then the world caught up and everyone got on the data science train or the analytics train anyway. And then I morphed my role into more helping my clients get the most out of their investment in analytics. So how to uplift your analytic maturity and instill standardized processes and better governance and better use of tools, data, technology, et cetera, to pay back that investment you're making in your people, your data and your technology. So I call that analytic transformation or AI maturity. I'm, I'm mostly selling it as nowadays. I left Deloitte and went to another consulting firm, PwC, where I was their chief data scientist for 10 years. I guess the work there expanded with larger transformations, larger and more complex analytic engagements, did some fantastic work as blockchain started emerging for using distributed solutions of trust to help with things like supply chain visibility, which is very relevant now for ESG. I led globally an initiative called Responsible AI. We started five years ago. It's very topical at the moment, but it was early days then, which is where we said, hey, this fantastic power of these technologies to bring value to business actually does come out of cost. There's a new risk profile for those. And first and foremost is with great power comes great responsibility. So what's your ethical framework by which you decide just because we can do this thing with AI, how do we decide whether or not we should do it? And then underneath that, the sort of the onus or the accountability back on the business to ensure it's fair and unbiased that it's explainable and transparent, that it's robust and secure, um, that it's safe and controllable. These are the performance monitoring obligations for AI, and I, I still don't think we're there yet. And then underneath it all, that is much more solid governance to be able to say, that's the model we used. That's why it gave that answer. This is the training data. Here's the sort of verification we've done um, to allow us to trust that response. Even more onerous when we're taking humans out of the loop and it's automated AI and more general AI moving up to that sort of autonomous humans out of the loop, general purpose AI, fantastic benefits when used correctly, but also a new and different and emerging risk profile. So really been focusing on managing that AI risk for the last half a decade. Can I just go a few steps back? Because of course. I still remember when big data was the trendy word, but as you say, organizations didn't know what to do with it. And there was a huge collection of data, but the what that time would have been called big data is today huge because we have so much more, not only that we collect so much more data, but we have so many more avenues to actually collect information, collect data. I'm keen to understand where do you see the future? Are we going to, I just see this sort of line going up or a hockey stick, if you like, of data. It's a hockey stick. Yeah, that's the key, that it's not a line going up. And the physicist Alfred Bartlett said in 1976 that the greatest failing of the human species, the whole species, is our inability to appreciate exponentiality. The fact that because we've invented technologies, yeah. starting with the technologies like language and storytelling that have enabled us to build on efforts of the generation before through the sharing of technology, it means human efforts have been exponential they haven't been linear but like many exponential patterns it, it seems flat and linear for so long until it really reaches the crux of that hockey stick so I think I upset a lot of vendors I think big data was very much a vendor-led term uh, data has always been increasing exponentially in both the amount of the data the volume of the data 
the velocity of the data, the variety of the data. So that's one exponential pattern. Combined with that is the exponentiality of computing power. The fact that processes on a chip have been doubling every 18 months since the 60s. Yeah. You, you then add some other exponential factors to that, such as communication, the ability to move the data around or storage, the ability to store it or all the, the many technologies that lead to the IoT revolution in terms of um, exponential power of batteries and exponential um, growth in or, or declining cost of microprocessors and small devices. So all of these things are exponential and hockey stick. And then they all start to reinforce each other. That computing power allows exponential growth in AI. That exponential growth in data allows for exponential growth in algorithms. The ability to move it around allows for exponential applications out at the edge where it's needed. So to answer the question, where do I see it going? I see it going somewhere very different, much quicker than we have an intrinsic ability to appreciate. So there's a, another quote from Matthew Bishop, the editor of The Economist, who said that the pace of change has never been this quick, nor will it ever be this slow again. So just mm -hmm. as we're getting our heads around our ability to work with now largely unstructured data and automatically generate or send videos off for analysis or work with thousands of hours recorded calls into our call centers as a data asset to improve customer service, the AI technologies that allow us to solve these problems are not standing still, nor are they linear. They're all exponential. So what's actually going to be most relevant is our ability to change and adopt at much greater pace, not just technically, but also culturally. And also I think the secret to organizations really harnessing the value from this is finding the things that don't change. So what doesn't change? A great process doesn't change. The process I use for applying AI is a very standard one in industry called the cross-industry standard process for data mining. It's been around for 26 years. It says, start with a business problem that's important, understand the data, um, engineer and transform the data, still very important, apply your technique. Now that might be from the world of AI, a technique which didn't even exist a year ago. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You still apply a technique with a view to the problem in mind and then validate it and deploy it. So if you have a rock solid process that provides frameworks and structure for people doing that, as you have access to more data, more computing power, more powerful techniques to answer these questions, you're still working within the same framework. There are other frameworks for maturity that talk about where are you at with your ability to triage and prioritize business problems? Where are you at with your ethics around just because you can do it, should you do it? How are you doing it in terms of your process, your, your culture, your people, your structure, and what are you doing with data technology and governance? Now, those eight dimensions don't change either. So we can have another framework that an organization says, we need to assess our current state and our desired future state against these. So the trick to moving quickly in an exponential world is to latch onto the things that you can say, this is the way we do it, regardless of the technology. And then also to really try and open your mind to the fact that these aren't changing linearly, they're charging, changing exponentially. So the, the way you change becomes more important than what you're changing to. Okay, so can I, so you mentioned two things that, so one is maturity. And as we know, any product life cycle or anything like that has a maturity and then it plateaus. Do you think the difference between collecting whatever X number of data points to a next level of data points is not going to deliver that much bigger benefit, I assume. Yeah, I think. It, and it, you go, you yeah, go. Yeah. 
So is there a point where maybe artificial intelligence will be able to tell us it's okay, like it reached its maturity? No, I think that's counter some of the basic ideas of this exponential world and the reinforcing effects of not just exponential in AI, but also in data and it's just going to keep going ever quicker what hopefully matures is our ability to not get caught up in the hype of the latest greatest shiny thing or the fact that data has multiplied by a large factor every year it's that we are picking the right problems it's that we're really using these technologies for reasons that will impact our business and our society and our ability to use that output getting obsessed with the technology is the tail wagging the dog or the amount of data. Now, I believe you should always collect all of the data. Don't throw anything away. It's decreasing exponentially in the cost of storage, even as it increases exponentially in the amount that you're storing. That data is an asset and you never know when you're going to need it or how you're going to use it. But what you really need to focus on is the first bit of that pipe, which is asking the right question in the first place. And then the last bit of the process, which is ensuring you're using those insights to actually bank that value. Okay, so coming back to, are we actually solving the right problem? How do you see that? Because it's still humans are asking that question, aren't they? Yeah, and in business, when a large corporation, and I've worked with many of them that have said this, start by saying, we need to put AI inside everything, you're off on the wrong foot. Yeah. I'd rather say to them, hey, I'm an expert in AI but I'm never going to know as much about your business as you do. It's your business. What is keeping you up at night, whether it's your customers or your employees or your operations or your supply chain or your financials or whatever aspect of it's your business that your competitors or your next product or your pricing or your distribution, you know the areas of your business that could be more efficient or more optimized or more resilient. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the focus on the business problem, which you in the business as a senior stakeholder should know very well. And then I will show you how the data you have, how the assets you have, and how the technologies that are now available can release value against that business problem. So I don't think that competent business leaders don't have a handle on the areas of their business that need to be improved. And probably the Pareto, the principle that some of them are going to yield much greater returns than others. Thank you. I also, I'm very much, I feel like I'm here with a professor of AI. I could, how can I even say that I agree? Of course I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I only can agree because you're the genius. But coming back to the human aspect and the leadership and where do you see the future of, so AI is trendy right now. Where do you see the, the peak or the best application on AI and where is the area that you think that humans are still going to be in control or should be in control? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I actually think the best outcome will always be humans working with our tools. So humans remaining in the loop, that idea of it's the human and the machine together that provides the best performance rather than looking for a fully automated machine only solution. Um, I think the approach with AI, especially if you come to believe that idea of exponentiality is very soon, you should approach things by saying, I don't even have to wonder if this thing is possible. I assume the technology can do this thing. And this thing might be 
listen to every conversation that's ever had or sit into every meeting that we ever have and synthesize the thoughts or read through every document that we've ever produced and turn it into a workable knowledge base with generative AI or the next big thing that happens after generative AI. So if all of these things are possible, the onus is more on picking the things to focus on and ensuring that just because you can do these things, you should do them so that it's ethically appropriate and that it's legal and, and protects privacy and doesn't disadvantage one group to the benefit of another unfairly. So never lose sight, AIML, you're right, these are absolute buzzwords at the moment. When is something AI versus not AI? I'm not sure many people could answer that properly. When is it just regular analytics? When is it traditional statistics? Mm. When is it at some hybrid between them? When is it supervised or unsupervised or feed forward or some other approach? It doesn't really matter. Let's not split hairs here. We're talking about digital tools. Yeah. Most of which use data, some of which do not use data, some of which are based simply on rule sets and solve within that. If you think of adversarial networks or some of the work in reinforcement learning, like AlphaGo or AlphaFold, that's not based on big data sets, that's more based on different techniques. Yeah. But we have these technologies, we have these tools, really clever hammers, or as my friends at FutureCrunch say, smart sand smashed with lightning. It's a tool of our own devising. What do we use these tools for? We use these tools to create value or reduce risk against the problems we're facing. Now, I see this as actually solving some of the greatest problems of society, reducing greenhouse gases, decarbonisation, overcrowding, pollution, medical challenges. I think these technologies will solve all of these problems for us because oh. they are amazing tools and we've invented can, them. Can we go into that? Yeah. Um, so obviously AI can replace a lot of things and we have this whole holographic sort of things that exist now and you would not be able to recognise which one is real things and what things are not real. Do you think that it can replace, that we won't have CEOs, let's say, but we'll have some kind of AI-led leaders? Look, I think I've read about a couple of companies that have tried to do that recently. I think it's mostly for the hype and the attention that you would promote such an idea. And I, I really do think that it's going to be the humans working with the machines and you're never going to let the tool rule over the human. I do think that we need to be really careful with our right to know when it is a machine versus when it is a human. I think the amount of machine generated content is going to be, gen is going to be growing exponentially. And because the machines themselves are training based on content, it's even important for the machines to know when they're looking at a, a movie or a piece of content online, digital content that's been generated by another machine versus a human. So I think that's actually one of our first challenges in doing AI and the new technological world responsibly is being very clear about that trust factor. How can I trust that this is a real video? How can I trust that this is a genuine voice recording? How can I trust that's an accurate photograph? Um, mm. How can I trust the document that be, that email that I've received that purports to be from a human is actually from a human? So these are all the, the type of challenges I'm talking about that having a, a clear view on when it's a human versus a machine is going to help with. I can imagine that a lot of, for example, of our legal system is very easily understood by an AI system. Yeah. The same is with medicine, the same is with some of the sort of rules-driven um, professions. 
and education? Is it something that we will, in 20 years or 50 years time, we will be there just navigating the system to tell us this is the outcome for the, I don't know, the court case? Or where do you see the practical application in the future? I, I think that's where the machine plus the human is the best outcome for society. So I think machines can remind us that that is variant from what's happened before. With medical cases, a, a machine um, is often proven to be more accurate than doctors because it's looking at all of the cases in its expert learning system. The role for humans is to set the right goals for the machines to solve for. And that's where humans will have an increasingly relevant and important role. So I think a good application of the law should be rules-based and able to be followed by a machine because it shouldn't matter that I have judge A versus judge B, it should be a fair and equitable system. But what goals do we train these machines on? And I often use the warning from our great first failed AI experiment as a species and that's social media. So social media was probably the first time most of us encountered AI influencing us, deciding what to show us next in our feed, suggesting what video to watch. And the algorithms were set up to essentially provide free services that were paid for by advertising. So the goal seeking was to show the right videos to maximize time on site. We set the wrong goal, or we didn't regulate to have the goal set correctly. And it's um, still not regulated. And it's still not fairly regulated. And that idea of maximising time on site, the machines did very well, but along the way have destroyed trust and communities and increased hate and extremism because the goal was not correct. Maximising time on site wasn't complex enough. It had to be within the container of maintaining fair and balanced content and actually trying to connect people. And the initial goals of social media were not met because we got the goal-seeking function wrong. So as we rely on these tools more and more, of course, they can't set their own goals. That has to be in line with a human that's saying the right thing for society in a healthy legal system or in a healthy medical system is that our tools optimise for these outcomes. And that's where we're going to need to be increasingly vigilant. Where do you see the biggest risk? That's it. The biggest risk is that the goals are set and not adequately regulated or consumers aren't adequately informed to regulate by voting with their feet in their wallet that the goals are set with short-term profit maximization in mind within a small corporate view, and that those goals then influence the behavior of these machines who impact our society in adversarial ways to profit for those companies, but to the detriment of the, the greater good for society. I think that's the biggest risk. And I've thought about this a lot recently. It's like, sometimes we think, oh, how could you possibly regulate a technology like this? We've been regulating technology since we've had technology. We regulated mustard gas soon after World War I. We regulate the content in a movie for rated R, rated M. We regulate our cars and the, we regulate our guns. We regulate intellectual property. So we re, through the law, which is a tool to regulate the technology of information, we have had a long history of successfully regulating our technologies. For some reason, these latest digital technologies we've just done such a terrible job of. Do you think that it's, a, it's the outcome of the fact that they have moved on so quick? And Yeah, it's, no. the law is not built, nor should it move quickly. You actually want it to be relatively stable. The, the greatest minds and the greatest thinking has not necessarily been, with these technical specialities, gravitating towards government and regulation. 
you've had the free market driving enormous profits out of Silicon Valley, which is yeah. encouraging the setting of goals myopically. Yeah. And it's just galloped ahead. So you've actually got, it's, it's embarrassing to watch a guy like Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress. It's embarrassing because of how poor the questions are they ask him. Those in power to regulate have such a terrible understanding gen, genuinely of this technology that, that they just can't even operate in the same sphere of effectively forming regulation. So I was going to go there. Do you believe that because technology is part of our world, do you believe there is a need for a bigger focus on politics, focusing on what technology and what artificial intelligence should be solving? And or, or governance and accountability. I'm fine with artificial intelligence solving certain problems. What I'm not fine with is the inability to explain how it did that. Mm. Or you might have made a mistake in a certain model. I think you should be able to tell me what version of the model that was and how it was tested. So just appropriate governance for the tools. Let's just replace AI with any tool or technology and look at how well we regulate safety in the aeroplane industry. Mm down to the nth degree or you want to go manufacture a new car or a new motorbike you'll have a ton of regulations very well informed engineering based regulations we can apply exactly the same approach to our digital technologies and i think it doesn't necessarily come from a few politicians at the very sort of top of this pyramid it actually comes from education and alignment with children starting in primary school as to the fundamental human rights around privacy and equitability and fairness and they will then end up creating the society that if their decision makers within a company are making decisions within the right frameworks or if they're um, part of a society that makes decisions around purchase that they will take their dollars and their attention towards those companies that are putting out appropriate statements for how they use these technologies ethically. Okay, so my question here is human life goes through whatever 70, 80, 100 years and we have children that actually need certain time to evolve, grow and develop, yet artificial intelligence is just going, growing so much faster. Is the human development growing or going as fast or, as, or is meeting the artificial intelligence yeah, I, I do. And, and no, it, it won't and it never will. And the artificial intelligence is exponential and our own development is not. Exactly. However, the ideas we have develop exponentially. So this is the rub. How do we catch up culturally with something that um, moves so much quicker than us? Mm. And, and again, like the way you do that in a business with the right process and frameworks, you do that in society with the right process and frameworks as well. First, to be doing no harm, to be always asking why are we using the tool in this way? The tool will become exponentially more powerful, but we haven't relinquished control to it or full autonomy yet. So we talk about it like it's completely out of control, but at the end of the day, these are still tools being built by and used by humans in corporations that are formed in line with corporation laws that have existed for many hundreds of years. So let's rather look for the things that stay the same rather than the things that are moving so quickly and so differently. And let's also never forget that, that these are our tools. These are our creations as a society. Why do we accept them not being used in the right way? Oh, that's a good one. So <laughs> I come back again to education. I have not seen actually education change substantially. Hmm. 
over the last 40 years. 200 it, years hasn't changed for. Um, okay. And it, do you see an opportunity for AI to support education and the development and child's development? Massively. I There's another quote which I draw upon often from a guy called Martin Kranzberg who coined the law of technology that technology in, of, in and of itself is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. So it's the last, nor is it neutral, it's tricky. In other words, it's completely up to what we do with it. So on one hand, there is a future where AI is providing an always on, incredibly patient, personalized tutor that's available for every child on the planet. Yeah, I've heard As opposed it. to the tiny percentage whose parents can afford expensive and intelligent tutors. And on the other hand, it could also dumb us down as a society where we end up just trusting the machine and not thinking for ourselves. That's not the technology's fault. That's the choice for us as a society. We've got to look at things like obesity epidemics in a similar way. We enable fast food companies and we support politicians who, when the backlash gets too big, start to put in place regulations around fat levels and sugar and notification on packaging and education. But at the same time, we are the humans that are creating these fast food restaurants. Yeah, and that but, are, that are... Human, yeah but we have human nature and human nature is self-serving. And that, this is our opportunity to evolve. So it's not going to be technology's fault. In and of itself, it could do fantastic things for us. We learn how to split an atom and possibly produce clean power through nuclear fusion fission, but instead we go and build a bomb. So let's not blame the science who to find out how to split the atom. That, that comes down to the fundamental aspect of human nature. And I think AI will be pointed at and is being pointed at some of the greatest problems. Look how much it contributed to the vaccine development and deployment in COVID. An amazing effort by humanity, never seen before level of coordination and speed to solve such complex problems. So that's us using AI for good. And then you see AI being used for evil, weaponized in a way through social media and interfering with elections and all kinds of other data points that, that say, hey, we could be doing better with this. Okay. I'm a believer that we can do anything like humans. Whatever you decide to do, you can do it. But coming back to the self-serving nature of humans, is there an opportunity that we would have AI helping us manipulate or change human nature so that instead of us building nuclear bombs, we are building electricity and power sources so that we actually manipulate, if you like, our own personalities and our own behaviors by artificial intelligence to be nicer, better, gooder, I call it. <laughs> So look, this is some of the fundamental challenges from AI researchers who say these machines are going to be better at understanding us and at pushing yeah. our emotional buttons and tapping into some fundamental aspects of human nature like empathy with suffering. Mm. And they will start to manipulate us to goal seek the wrong way and to achieve the wrong thing. Alternatively, to manipulate us and goal seek the right way and achieve the right thing. It comes down to how do we set those goals? How do we say this is a good it's thing for our us. tool to do? 
but it's still us setting the goals and coming back to is there now as we are at the brink the hockey stick is already up but we are definitely not at the top of the hockey stick is there now the opportunity to set some kind of regulations or rules where we influence the development of AI only takes a path that is actually for the better of humanity. And I I think it's great that we are having these conversations as a society and where I intend to try and get us to start is with that most fundamental aspect of, as a human, I have the right to know whether I'm speaking to another human or a machine, whether that content is generated through human agency and basically bringing back trust. So technology has both broken trust and has the keys to solving for trust with things like public-private key encryption, with things like digital signatures, with things like um, distributed ledgers and blockchain and privacy-enhancing technology. So the technology in and of itself hasn't broken trust. That breaking trust is a bad side of it. It It is not the technology as such. It's going to be what we do with it, what we choose to do with it. And I think putting in place now a very simple premise, which is we demand to know machine or human. M-O-R-H, I'm calling it more. We need more. That can be very quickly and easily regulated. And you know what? The companies that want to do the right thing, that are building AI for good, ostensibly open AI and, and and the hyperscalers and the rest, to say, look, fundamentally, we're trying to do the right thing here. I'm sure they'll step up and say, yes, we'll tag it. We'll let you know when that came from a large language model. And even better, we'll let you know what version and what the random seed was so that it's replicable. And the humans that want to do the right thing will say, I'm happy to stand by that as a genuine photograph or a genuine voicemail. And everything else falls into the gray area in the middle. So instead of blacklisting things, we end up in a world where we only whitelist things and we use technologies of trust to do that for us. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I completely agree with you, the time is now. The hockey stick doesn't reach the top. It just keeps getting steeper. We can put in place ideals and regulations today that solve for the challenges of tomorrow. And the main challenge of tomorrow is going to be the human content and the stuff we want to listen to as the sensible discourse between humans in a democracy will be dwarfed by the noise from machines. So let's take that first step of saying a fundamental foundational right is human or machine or human. And that's, that's going to be my crusade for the next few months at least. Oh, that's brilliant. I go now into fraud because that kind of leads into what has been happening and AI plays a huge role in fraud, unfortunately. What's your view? So fraud is that breaking of trust. But it's still the humans. I think it's very simple to put a, anyone can write a standard. I wrote the standard for this with ChatGPT in one evening. So it's whether or not people agree to work with a standard or to adhere to it. Now, if we make a standard simple enough and appealing enough that combines existing technologies, so things like public-private key encryption that allows me to trust that came from you, things like digital signatures that allow me to trust that piece of content hasn't been changed. When you combine those two ideas together and then when you bring to that distributed ledgers, so the ability to reference a piece of material and know also that it is immutable, just those three ideas together allow for the signing and verification of content from an originator. Now that originator might be version 4.1.0.3 of ChatGPT. That originator might be a photograph from Matt Cooperholtz's phone. I do think we will have mass 
directories of trust and of digital signatures and of document hashes and document verification because we need to solve for trust. We've solved for it in the web browser with the little padlock that says, yes, I'm definitely at my bank site. I know that because it's signed with their certificate. So we've already solved for many of these problems. There's just more impetus to bring a larger standard to bear because I do think we'll move to a world where we don't trust it unless it is signed according to this standard, as opposed to we trust it for de by default and we're then fooled and defrauded in many occasions. So we can have watertight or near watertight solutions for trust. And all it takes is us to step up and agree a standard the same way we have with the padlock in the browser. And you see this happening sort of fairly soonish? I think it needs to happen fairly soon. Yeah, I don't think these are actually incredibly complex issues. I think this is a societal issue. I think we genuinely want it to happen. I think we live in, in countries that would regulate for it if we made it easy enough. And I think we've got enough precedents in things like digital signatures and public-private key encryption that we can make it happen. So it's actually very much a growing mission of mine. I, I think this is echoed by almost all AI and, and, and technology um, academics and students and, and companies that say, hey, we need to do something about trust and we need to do something about governance and we need to do something about traceability. And it turns out all of those things leverage solutions we've already got. Thank you. Can we now go into your childhood? Sure. When you were growing up, artificial intelligence didn't exist. Or what was the drive? Look, I would never have in my wildest dreams have thought that I would have a career that I loved so much working with things that are genuinely my passion. I would do anything to play with technologies and computer as a child. I would do anything to solve difficult problems with maths and with theory and with logic. And I did a lot of things to get attention as an extrovert. Now it turns out that's exactly where I've ended up, communicating complex ideas up the front, showing off using maths, data and technology all day, every day. So I feel incredibly blessed to be able to do what I genuinely am passionate about and live my purpose. I'd hoped I'd get there. I, I would have hoped we had a world where computers were prevalent. And it turns out that's where we have ended up. I, I don't think I appreciated the darker side of it as a kid, the, the mm. potential for it to be used with the evilness of human nature for mass defrauding, for cyber warfare, for digital hostage taking, with cyber ransoms and things like that. But again, that's human nature. Overall though, I do believe in the overarching good of humans as opposed to the evil of them. So I think we'll end up in a good place. Good. What would you like to leave as the legacy when in a few years time, what do you want to be known for as? That's a really good question. Probably changes a bit. I would really like to live on as someone that's made a significant impact on humanity in line with my purpose and my purpose is optimizing humanity using technology so helping us do the best good with these tools now i don't think i'm going to write the algorithm that's going to solve for cancer but i think i might be able to help lead changes that relate to standards for visibility and supply chains for things like environmental uplift things like solving this problem of identifying machines versus humans, solving for problems of trust. These would be great things to have in my legacy. I'd take any one of those three. Okay. And if there would be, some people have a list of things to do before they die. What is one of the top three that you still haven't achieved and still would like to do? 
I don't have that bucket list going. I'm lucky I get to do most of them anyway. I'll soon be riding a motorbike over the highest road in the world in the Himalayas is only open four months a year. So it's a shame to have the only thing on your bucket list that I'm about to tick off. But you know, beyond that, I just hope to be able to stay at the forefront of these amazing technologies and to help ensure they're used for good. It's amazing. Thank you so much. This has so been, welcome. This is so much fun. It's such an honor having you. And uh, if there is anything else you would like me to add to it, I'm happy to do what I think. It's, I mean, it was a great chat. I'm really looking forward to listening to it back and uh, hopefully doing some work with you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Wait, reach out anytime. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.